the world faces unprecedented challenges that require urgent responses, new innovative solutions, and we need technology to do that. This is CES Tech Talk. I'm James Kotecki, and we are back. CES 2023 is January 5th through 8th in Las Vegas, and we are here to get you hyped and get you smart about the world's most influential tech event. A central theme of CES this year is human security for all, how technology improves food access, healthcare, environmental protection, and more. To support human security, CES has partnered with the World Academy of Art and Science, a group of scientists, artists, and thinkers tackling some of humanity's greatest problems. The WAAS was founded by people like Albert Einstein, Robert Oppenheimer, and Bertrand Russell. Today, the president and CEO is Gary Jacobs, who is today's guest. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. It's great to be here. Exciting. It is exciting, especially because this issue of human security for all, such a substantive, meaty policy topic. In fact, this is actually a UN initiative. So set the scene for us. Why did the UN partner with the World Academy of Art and Science? And then why did you, in turn, as the World Academy of Art and Science, partner with CES? What brings these different groups together? James, it starts with the context. And why we're here at CTA, I think, is easily answered that way. The last half century has been absolutely unprecedented and remarkable advances in technology in all fields. Yet at the same time today, with all our accomplishments, the world faces unprecedented challenges that require urgent responses, new innovative solutions. And we need technology to do that, just to cite the obvious, we're just recovering from COVID-19 pandemic, which posed not just a health problem, but a multi-dimensional threat to virtually every aspect of people's lives all over the world. Not just health, we had impacted on food production and food supply and economic activity and jobs and schools were closed everywhere and transport shut down and manufacturing and global supply chains and all. We're in the middle of the war in Ukraine, creating severe food and energy problems, price inflation for people all over the world. So it's not just a question of war, it's a question of threatening the security of people in all areas, not to mention climate change, which is just kind of looming in the future. And we're reading about it all the time, but that's likely to exceed the challenges we face today so many times more. We simply can't afford to ignore these problems, and technology has to be part of the solution. So we're looking to partner with CTA to look at and encourage this tremendous creativity and innovative resources that are here in the industry to see if they can turn more and more of their attention to addressing issues that are of deep personal interest and concern to people all over the world. It seems like the phrase human security for all is really meant to encapsulate and bring together a lot of seemingly disparate policy issues, global crises that if we think about all these different things happening, it can seem overwhelming. Is, is the idea of human security for all that you kind of put it into a context that regular people can understand and respond to? That's exactly it, James. You know, the UN has been promoting 
the 17 Sustainable Development Goals since 2015. And they cover a lot of the same territory that we're talking about. But for a lot of people, they say, well, what's that has to do with me? But when you talk about food for everybody, energy for everybody, health care for everybody, education for everybody, a safe environment in the community, personal safety, equal rights for women and minorities and everything, it comes home as something personal and not just the quantitative numbers that we hear about CO2 in the atmosphere or unemployment or inflation. And, and that's the message that our security doesn't just depend on our military forces, even though they're really important to have national security investments, but most people are not being impacted on that. Most people are being impacted on these other things that affect all of us all over the world. It's what we have in common. And that's what we're trying to focus on. You referred to the partnership with CTA. That's the Consumer Technology Association, which is, of course, the group that's putting on CES. And so now we turn to the perspective of an average CES attendee. So they're coming to CES once again. Maybe they're excited to be back in Vegas after a couple of years of not being able to come. And they show up and they see human security for all as part of the show. And they think, what does this have to do with me in this context? So we talk about, obviously, very important reasons to care. But what's the business case? What does the average business person who comes to CES need to think about this? I'm a business consultant myself. That's I've spent my, my life studying successful businesses historically and over time. And one of the things we found is the companies that grow not only fast, but keep growing over and over are the companies that are able to adapt to the changing, evolving needs of the society around them. And that's what the CES show is all about. New innovation, new technology to meet new needs. Just to call for an example, you know, in the 80s, the computer was coming up and it became a dominant force with the spread of the PC and all. But it was one company that really realized computer can be a threat. We can feel threatened and replaced by the computer is going to replace us unless we learn to speak its language, which is some crazy thing like Fortran or Unix or something like that. And Apple created, I studied Apple at that time. I was there when the Macintosh came out. Apple created a, a, a computer that talks our language, that speaks to our metaphor with desktops and trash cans and stuff like that. And I think it's really important that companies attune themselves to meeting needs in ways that people can reverberate to and relate to. And that's what we see here. I can give you an, a dramatic example that you'll see, that people will see and hear at the CES in, in January. You know, on the last five years, we talked so much about the mobile phone and how it has changed our lives and everything. In the last five years, India has extended mobile technology down to the lowest levels of the society in the rural areas to people who never had access to banking, never had access to formal credit, had no way to even receive government subsidies and things like that. And now it's become a pioneer. In mobile banking, you can go into the barber shop or the dentist or virtually anybody and just transfer money over your phone. You don't need a credit card. You don't need anything. And this has had an impact on maybe hundreds of millions of people who are now having economic inclusion and financial inclusion. The technology of mobile already existed. 
But to think of it creatively in terms of how it can benefit people in outlying areas where now they can get pricing on products all over the world. They can be ordering products from Amazon a thousand miles away and so forth. So I think looking at it from the, the consumer's point of view is really the heart of what CES is all about. New technologies require looking at it differently than before. It seems like the basis of this idea of human security for all and the various things you're going to do at the show, which I want to talk about, is kind of about like shaking people's perspective up a little bit. Say, hey, you're kind of looking at this one way. You should be looking at this another way. What do you think is the roadblock for certain companies? Do they just kind of get in their silos and in their lanes and in certain mindsets and they aren't able to see some of these bigger pictures? This is a, a subject I've studied for a long time and studied companies over 100 years. And what looks so obvious to us in retrospect is usually not very obvious before somebody does it. One of the ways I think about it is that the mind is like a rearview mirror. When we look in the rearview mirror, we know exactly where we were coming from. <laughs> and it all makes so much sense to us. And it was logic that we should have done this. But when you look one step ahead, what's going to happen next year, what next day, next month, we're blind to a very large extent. And that, especially when we're successful, and you know the corporate histories are full of examples of highly successful companies, like companies that were the biggest when I was growing up. What happened to Kodak and its camera? It was the name all over the world in cameras. And yet when the digital camera came, we don't do that. We don't need that. There were, I don't like to mention too many names and I'm not down on any company, but even when the internet was invented, one of your top members said, don't worry about that. It has no real impact. It's a passing fancy. And another one of them, when Apple went into the iPhone business, the CEO said, look, there's no chance of them succeeding in this. We've already got BlackBerry and Nokia, and whether do we need anything more? So it looks so obvious in retrospect. But when we're successful, success can be the biggest barrier to our future progress. It's good to be humble. It's good to be attuned. And the companies that really attune keep changing their business model as the society moves. And I imagine one of the other problems of being so successful is that up until the prediction that you make that is wrong, all of your other predictions might have been correct. So you might have said, oh, that's, you know, thing A is a fad, thing B is a fad, thing C is a fad. And you might have actually been right about all those things. And then if you keep in that mindset, then the finally the thing that comes up that isn't a fad or that actually is a threat, you've already kind of locked into a mindset that you already can predict these things and it's not. And there are many dramatic examples of companies that missed opportunities. When the Xerox was invented, I forget the name of the guy now, he went around to 50 of the top companies. This was in the early 50s, offering this technology, big name companies, even big today, and was turned down by them. And finally, it was a company who wasn't even really in the business that said, this looks like it has a potential. <laughs> And that became Xerox Corporation. So we have lots of examples. 3M was one of the ones that turned it down. And by the way, they decided virtuously that they're never going to make that mistake again. <laughs> and so they, they reoriented their whole culture to think differently and come up with unimaginable innovations like the Post-it note, a billion dollar company, <laughs> just because the glue doesn't really stick too well. 
So CES is obviously a great place to meet a lot of different people and have these kind of innovative conversations and get different ideas for how the future could unfold. And I want to talk about specifically what the WAAS is helping to program at CES as far as this human security for all initiative. So first of all, I understand there's several different conference sessions that you're going to be programming at CES. What are some of the topics? Who are some of the people that you're looking forward to? Well, one of them I just mentioned was on the financial inclusion through the mobile phone system. I'm a top executive from the government of India that is offering this technology free to the world because it's had such a tremendous impact on enhancing human security in India, and they want to help spread it to other countries. Now, for that, it's not the governments that do this. It's the businesses that do it. So for companies to see this opportunity and to understand what we have missed, you know, there are some things that are easier to do in India financially than even in the U.S., which is the, the start of all of this phenomenal technology. So I think there are opportunities for everybody, not just for the, for the curious who want to learn something, but for those who want to benefit. And I, I mentioned education. UNICEF has done a study of technologies that could dramatically improve the quality and lower the cost of education, even at school level around the world. They have trouble selling it to governments. But our feeling is the real innovations in education are going to come in the private sector. It's going to be companies, and that's what's happening already at the higher educational level. Technology is there, but adaptive, resourceful strategies for disseminating it and making it into a business model. This is a huge market. You know, we have hundreds of millions of youth are entering the age for higher education today, and there's no way we can meet that need by building more universities. It would take us 50 years to do it. So we need new delivery systems, and that's what's happening already. You have companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon who are creating their own courses and offering them out to people and saying, if you take these courses, you get a job, you qualify with them. So education's a big one. Healthcare, innovations in healthcare, whether it's the wearable things to protect us at home or the improvements in technology for diagnosis or for treatment. There are many companies in this industry that are real leaders in the healthcare industry. And then you have, of course, food. One of your big new entrants is John Deere in the association. John Deere is pioneering in new technologies to improve food production that can have vast impact. Many companies are there like that. Water conservation, ecological, dealing with pollution, reducing the consumption of raw materials and so forth. We talk about so many of these issues like healthcare, like education, and I wonder if there's actually things that we collectively have learned during the pandemic that maybe we haven't even fully digested in the United States, but that could have broader impacts around the world. So if you think, for example, about education, and the lesson for a lot of folks, I think, in the United States was uh, Zoom education stinks, and we got to get back kids back into the classroom. But I wonder if there's a situation in developing countries where that's not a choice between having a kid on Zoom and a kid in a classroom. It's a choice between having a kid on Zoom or an equivalent kind of virtual school and nothing. And so if we've learned lessons from the pandemic about how to better disseminate and do that kind of education online, that that actually has huge impacts. James, just imagine for a minute, just to follow up on your thought, 
imagine for a minute that any student, any youth anywhere in the world could have access to the highest quality teaching and the highest, most reliable information in the language of their choice, sitting at home or sitting in their area. The cost of education is skyrocketed, not just in the US. In India, we see people mortgaging their homes in order to get their children into medical school or engineering college and stuff like that. It's not necessary. We have an old paradigm, an old system that hasn't adapted. And we're talking about major disruption in education all over the world that's going to be done by the private sector through new technologies. We're going to give up a lot of the superstitions that have prevented us from doing it. And it's going to be companies that innovate and prove these new models work. Hey, speaking of the word innovation, what a great transition you just set me up for. Human security is going to be a factor in the CES Innovation Awards. And these are typically physical products, but sometimes maybe more digital things or concepts that are displayed and awarded at CES. What's an example of a tech product that you have your eye on that you think might be the kind of thing that could be a contender for such a thing? Well, James, you and I are going to have to wait patiently for CES <laughs> because I'm asking that question every day and we would love to know in advance. In fact, the Academy is, is putting up the, the judges, the panel of judges that will finally be selecting the innovative technologies in human security. And we are as eager as anyone to know what's going to come out of it. We can quote from the past, we all have seen remarkable technologies, but that's what this is going to help us do. We want to hold up those examples of the really successful companies that are doing something innovative and making it great as a model and a catalyst for others. We look at the unmet human needs, they're commercial opportunities, but we got to think differently. And as we discussed, that that's not always easy, especially when we're successful, especially when we think we know what our business is, what our industry is. And adapting to the opportunities requires giving up those old perspectives. This idea of thinking differently, attacking old problems in new ways, it feels very entrepreneurial. It feels like a concept that would be at home for kind of a stereotypical scrappy person in a startup or a two-person company in a co-working space ready to take on the world and disrupt the giants. But let's be honest. I mean, a lot of the people that come to CES are from more established companies. Maybe they're mid to high level executives in large established companies. They're one important piece of a much bigger puzzle. And so what's your message to those folks? How do they think, okay, I'm in the middle of this giant machine and we can do good things, but it's slower for us. Or I have to convince 50 other people and all these different stakeholders. And it's a more challenging modality than if I was just kind of a scrappy entrepreneur. What's your message to someone like that? That is the challenge for all of us. And it's the challenge for every company. The world has never changed so rapidly as it is now. And the rules that worked before and the technology that worked before and the products that were the leaders before are simply, there's no guarantee that they will be in the future. And that's what you're getting at. The only way that we know of to do that is to really bring in the new generations, bring in the young leaders and thinkers. You know, I remember studying Intel back about 35 years ago, and they had introduced a course for what they called constructive confrontation. They were having the problem that their older executives, older means by that time 35 years old, and not older than that, 
were being challenged by the young people who came in just out of Stanford or Berkeley or other schools and uh, were challenging them and questioning them and challenging the way they were thinking. And they said, look, we need that challenge. We need it without creating resentment and building obstacles and, and resistance. We need to learn to hear the youth and give them a way to express themselves because they're not wedded to the old the way we are. And of course, the technology industry is one of the youngest industries in terms of its innovations. You remember, Steve Jobs was thrown out of Apple <laughs> by the older timers that he had hired to help him, help him do it. And the company didn't recover until they brought back the youthful vision. So this is a challenge. I think that if companies are aware of it, if they have respect for the fact that yesterday's success is no guarantee for tomorrow, then we find ways of encouraging that creativity, of listening to it without feeling threatened by it, of creating innovation and entrepreneurship in the company to test out new models. And of course, one of the ways the most successful companies do that is by acquisition. They look at the young companies that have come up with something new, that have a new model, a new technology, a new delivery system, and they test them out and they encourage them. They, they become the incubators, incubators for great creativity. And that's how most of the really successful ones keep growing. And CES is obviously a place where the sparks of, of those ideas can certainly fly and those meetings and those conversations can happen. And CES, overall, we're here on this show really talking from a place of great optimism. But I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention that sometimes human security issues aren't solved by technology. They come from technology. Is there a framework that you encourage innovators to think about in terms of unintended consequences or just making sure that the results of what you're innovating on are a net positive and you're not putting on blinders to avoid the potential downside risks? James, I'm really glad you asked that question because it goes back to the roots of why the World Academy of Art and Science was founded in 1960. Because among the founders were people like Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer, who was the father of the Manhattan Project that created the atomic bomb. And they lived to regret that they had done it and realized that what they thought they were saving the world for democracy ended up endangering the whole world, including all the democracies. And the academy was founded by people who felt that science cannot just invent and in an ivory tower and let somebody worry about the results. The inventors have to have the sense of responsibility for the possible. Technology is a double-edged sword. The internet can be used for saving lives and, and educating millions. It can be used for fake news and, and espionage and criminal activity and all the other things as well. That's the nature of technology. But the problem with our educational system is we often don't teach our technical students about the impact of technology on society, whether it's the environmental impact or the security impact or the infringement on freedoms or anything else. And we feel the whole educational system has to adapt to making the sense of social responsibility really important. I mean, our industrial revolution went on for decades, more a century, never worrying about the environmental impact. We can't afford that luxury of unidimensional focusing anymore. We've got to equip our companies, our business leaders, 
and, and our technical people to understand the double-edged sword and consciously work to maximize the benefits and minimize the side effects. So is there a shared set of values that you encourage people to get on board with? Because obviously when you talk about doing the right thing, people can have different definitions of that. Well, that happens to be the field in which I have studied and written a lot in business, I'm speaking. And my own research and experience in consulting has shown that the companies that are really committed to the highest values, not just to put it on the corporate wall or make it sound good in the mission statement, but I mean are really committed to it, are the companies that keep growing and thriving in the long run. Because values are not just some idealistic, unrealistic principle. Values are the essence of what makes human beings successful and society successful. If you can't trust a bank, why would you ever do business with it? If you can't trust a product, if working in a place is not safe or a product is not safe, these are core values. And there are many wonderful stories, I've documented many of them, of companies that decided doing what appears to be not the profitable thing, but the right thing is actually the most profitable thing to do. A simple example, I'm talking 100 years ago, was DuPont. DuPont started out in the gunpowder industry, and they gave it up around 1900. But they had developed the value of safety. And they took that value of safety so high that their safety in DuPont factories was 80 times greater, 80 times greater than in the average chemical industry. And they said, that pays for itself over and over again. Our downtime is the lowest, our accident rates are the lowest, our equipment uh, losses are the lowest, our depreciation is, and, and so forth. They could show that it, that it works. And that's our experience. The top companies really know the value of values and know that it's not just a platitude that's contrary to the business model. It makes for the most successful, sustainable business model. Well, doing the right thing for our business and also doing the right thing for our world at the same time is very appealing. And thank you for helping to guide us through some of these concepts. Gary Jacobs, President and CEO, World Academy of Art and Science. Thank you. And we'll see you at CES 2023. I look forward to it. Thank you, James. Next up on CES Tech Talk, we learn about the autonomous race car competition you can cheer on from the stands at CES 2023. On January 7th, what people are gonna see is the world's fastest robots competing with each other. Please subscribe to the show so you don't miss a moment and get more CES at ces.tech. That's ces.tech. Our show today is produced by Nicole Vitovich with Kristen Miller and Mason Manuel, recorded by Andrew Lynn and edited by Third Spoon. I'm James Kotecki, Talking Tech on CES Tech Talk.